following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Good morning, CCF. Can you, can you hear me? All right, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Although we are uh, speaking, I'm speaking this morning from 1 Peter, which is our series, I want to begin uh, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. So if you open your Bibles to that, it should be on the screen as well, Matthew chapter 16. My title this morning is, uh, Jesus our example from suffering to glory. Jesus our example from suffering to glory. And our actual passage is 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 10 to 16. But we're going to begin with Matthew 16 and uh, verse 13 and miss a bit and then pick it up a bit later on so I'm going to read to you now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi he asked his disciples who do people say that the son of man is and they said some say John the Baptist others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets he said to them but who do you say that I am Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. The flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Then he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So my first heading is this. Suffering first, uh, then glory to follow. That's verses 10 to 12. And my second heading is get your mind ready, which is verses 13 to 16. That's first, uh, first Peter chapter 1. So first of all, let's think about this idea of suffering first and then glory to follow. Now, before we think about this morning's passage and also Matthew chapter 16, just cast your minds back to last week if you were here. If you weren't here, I'll just give you a kind of summary of what we said. But we thought about the first nine verses of Peter's letter. And uh, there Peter teaches that the Christian believer is born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we thought about what it meant to be born again. We thought about it meant, what it meant to, be, to have a living hope. So the year is about 62 or 63 AD. So it's roughly 30 years since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Peter is writing to people who are about to suffer because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ. And he also knows that he himself will suffer a martyr's death. So he's writing in some ways to instruct his own heart, I would imagine, I, would, I believe. Now at the time, as you will know, the, the dominant power in the world um, was Rome. They, Rome called itself the Eternal City. Um, and its emperors had begun to uh, persecute Christians the first one to really take persecution seriously was Emperor Nero. 
So the Roman Empire had conquered most of the, of the known world and it had absorbed numerous people groups, cultures, languages and religions. But the sheer diversity of the Roman Empire meant that there was this ever-present threat of fragmentation, that the empire would uh, break and divide. And so the, the, the Roman emperors looked for ways to unite the empire together. Uh, and Rome sought, uh, one way that it sought to try to unite the empire together was to establish a first allegiance for all of the citizens of the Roman Empire, and that was to Caesar himself. And they did this by insisting that all citizens should be forced annually and publicly to confess that Caesar was Lord, and, and everyone had to do this in front of local officials in your local town. And once you'd done that, confessed that Caesar was Lord, then you could confess any allegiance to any deity that you wanted to. But here's the point, Caesar had to be first. If you refuse to make your confession, then the penalties of not, of, of not confessing Caesar as Lord were, very, were often horrific, usually death by some barbaric means. And here was the problem for the early Christians. They couldn't confess that Caesar was Lord, because they knew that the very foundation of their Christian worldview was that Caesar, sorry, was that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of the universe. He is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. He is the King of all kings and he's the Lord of all lords. How could they confess that Caesar was Lord? So this refusal to confess that Caesar was Lord led to much persecution among the early believers. You see, Rome, the Roman Empire, claimed to offer an absolute and all-encompassing worldview. It had this creed, this belief system, that claimed to be the truth about the universe. Uh, Rome was in your face, it was aggressive, it was intolerant of dissenters, it sought to convert everybody to its way of thinking. And although, although there are differences um, in some ways, I think the best parallel I thought of as an, as an example of that we could compare the all-encompassing nature of the Roman Empire um, to is what we might call the LGBT pride movement of today. You know, pride uh, is um, increasingly acquiring a, a kind of religious status in the world, especially the Western world. And uh, it's, it's certainly here in Thailand in a more diluted form, but it will probably become stronger over time. I've got a couple of pictures um, of uh, a pride parade through a city. I think there's another one, another picture as well. Um, pride, if you just do a Google search, if you just put pride into Google, this is the only thing this happens for, this certainly with google.co.uk, uh, uh, you get all of this confetti that comes down over your screen in different colours of the rainbow, and then all these people march across the screen waving pride flags. It's the only thing it happens for. Um, at the moment. Let me just read to you what Wikipedia says about um, pride. So it says LGBT pride, also known as gay pride or simply pride, is the promotion of the self-affirmation, dignity, equality and increased visibility of lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender LGBT people as a social group. Pride as opposed to shame and social stigma is the predominant outlook that bolsters most LGBT rights movements. So pride, I'm going to talk about pride for a minute because I think it's a very good parallel to what was happening in the Roman Empire. But in the Roman Empire, 
There was one Caesar who was Lord, who was called Lord. Divinity was ascribed to the Caesar. But what's interesting is that pride, the pride movement, goes much further and claims that, in one sense, everyone is Caesar. Every human being has the right and the ability to create their own life and their own way of seeing the world, their own reality, in any way that they choose, especially in the realm of sexuality. You know, pride is virtually a claim to personal divinity, the ability to create yourself and your reality according to your preferences. And I would say it's Satan's latest strategy to destroy God's truth and his plan for his world, for, God, for God's plan for his world. So pride is um, taking place all over the world and its activists will not rest and they, until, they've, um, until it is adopted by the whole world. And this whole notion of pride, this idea of sexuality, uh, it grips the minds, it's gripped the mind of a whole generation of, of people, especially young people. You find it in corporations like Google and Microsoft, uh, all the way from the top to the bottom. Uh, you, uh, Google have um, added the, the, the pride rainbow colours to their logo. If you watch the um, English Premiership football, soccer, then the, the, the footballers wear pride shoelaces in their boots. When you go to the corners of the football pitch, the flags are pride flags. The captain wears an armband, which is a, a pride armband. Um, when I lived in England, before we came here, the fire trucks were painted in pride colours, and so were the police cars. We have drag queens in our schools, elementary schools, reading to children. And when I came back from Africa about five years ago and I read a newspaper and saw pictures of, um, of drag queens reading to young children, um, I really thought it must be the 1st of April. I had to check the date on the newspaper that this was actually really going on, that these children were being uh, encouraged to completely reconfigure their view of what it meant to be a man or a woman. There are pride processions in almost every town in the United Kingdom, as we saw here. Uh, pride has its own liturgy, it's got its own dogmas, it's got its own sacred language. You think about things like queer theology, pansexual, uh, questioning people who are questioning, people who are allies. Uh, the pride movement is seeking, uh, at the moment, a complete reconstruction of language to, to remove personal pronouns. Pride has its own calendar. In the United Kingdom, for example, um, we have one pride month for a whole month and we also have one month for LGBT history so two months of the year are devoted to pride that's very interesting when you think that our fallen soldiers get one day it gives you an idea of the magnitude of pride and its power and influence and as you will know many governments have passed laws or are, or are under huge pressure to pass laws which outlaw dissent verbal dissent against the whole pride movement and these laws are really blasphemy laws against blaspheming against the spirit of the age, which is often encapsulated in the pride movement. You have to, people are, will be punished who, who speak against this new religion. So the propaganda of pride is relentless. The brainwashing is relentless. It goes on and on and on. The people who are pushing this will never rest until this idea of pride captures the minds and hearts of everybody in the world. And we're moving to a point where to support pride... And all that's associated with it, with it has become the very definition of what it means to be a good person. 
a moral person. And to dissent has, is getting to the point where um, dissenting has become the very definition of what it means to be an evil person. And that means that we're going through at the moment in, in the world, and especially the Western world, and have done for about 20 years, a whole reconfiguration of what right and wrong is. Now, speaking about the cult of pride this morning is not my task, and it's not what I have set out to do, but I think it's worth saying that when persecution comes to believers in the West, it will come from this source, and it already is. Uh, people are losing their jobs and their livelihoods and being cancelled because of their stance against it. Because pride and in the end, pride and, in the end, pride and Christianity are incompatible. They are mutually exclusive. They are competing truth claims about the world. They can't be reconciled together. If Christians concede here and give up and adopt the pride agenda as some Christians are doing, then the whole of Christianity unravels. If we reinterpret the Bible on critical texts, then, uh, and we apply a certain inter uh, interpretive method on certain texts, and then, we, and then we'll be forced to, to apply those interpretive methods on the whole of the Bible, and the whole of the Bible will be a different book than it is now, the truth of the world as God has given us. Now that's just one example of, probably just one example of a kind of all-encompassing worldview that dominates the horizon and is very hard to stand against. Uh, in China, the threat is different. It's different again in, uh, for believers in the Islamic world. It's different in, the, in North Korea. It's different in Burma. But I'm just giving you one example of, of a, a kind of system which opposes God. Um, and all of these systems that oppose God, whether it's um, the Communist Party in China or whether it's uh, pride in the Western world or whether it's the Islamic system in Saudi Arabia... They're all, in some sense, making a claim that is salvific for the world. You follow this and you will, you will find life. Uh, you will find the meaning of life and you will find purpose um, and all of those things. These kind of claims are, are salvific. But just thinking about pride for another minute, uh, the pressure to conform and the intimidation that comes with it, it gives a little bit of a sense of, of the pressure that the early believers in the first century, the people that Peter was writing to, were either facing with a cult of Caesar or were about to face. Um, they had this whole Roman system in their faces all the time, pressuring them. And so against that kind of background, as we saw last week, um, Peter anticipates suffering to come for these believers and he writes to all of these churches in uh, Asia Minor, what is now, what is now modern-day Turkey, and he reminds them that they have an inheritance stored up in heaven for them. And he argues that their inheritance must fortify them for the hard journey that lies ahead. And it must us too when we face difficulties. Now remember that uh, Peter was a man who was born a Jew. And he was born a Jew at a time when Israel was under Roman occupation. And like most Jews uh, at the time when he met Jesus, he would have doubtless been looking forward to a time when God would raise up a mighty deliverer, a, a warrior, a soldier who would lead the Jews against uh, the Roman occupation. So let's just return to this revelation that Peter has in uh, Matthew chapter 16 um, of who Jesus is. So this happens at Caesarea Philippi. Uh, Jesus gathers his disciples around him and he asks them this question. He says, uh, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In other words, who am I? 
It's uh, the most important question in all the world. Who is Jesus? For every human being. How you answer that will determine how you understand the whole of reality, how you live and what your eternal destiny is. So what did his disciples say to Jesus? Well, they said, uh, some say John the Baptist, other people say Elijah, other people say Jeremiah, and one of the prophets. So uh, they, they tell Jesus the view on the street of who Jesus is. Uh, and the view on the street is that Jesus is, is a kind of reincarnated prophet from old. He's come back, he's come back to life. John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah. But that wasn't good enough for Jesus. He, he, he didn't want to know what other people thought. He wanted to know what they thought, who, what they thought who he was. And Jesus always does that with us, doesn't he? He always pushes us so that we come to a decision about who he is. But who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter receives this special understanding from heaven, from the Father in heaven, that Jesus is the Christ. The Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah, the anointed one. To a Jew, this meant that he was the long-expected saviour. But here's the thing that we need to think about this morning to understand our passage in First Peter. What did it mean for Peter that Jesus was the Christ? Well, I think Peter's mind almost certainly travelled down the road that this man in front of him, Jesus Christ, was the man who God had anointed to lead the Jews to shake off Roman rule. He was going to be a soldier, a warrior to fight the Romans. And then Peter gets this enormous shock. Because no sooner had Jesus confirmed uh, that he is the Messiah than he informs his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and the teachers of the law and on the third day he must be killed and on the third day he would be raised to life. And what does Peter do? Well, Peter's in shock, but he takes uh, Jesus onto one side for a quiet word in his ear. And he rebukes him. He says, far from it, be from it for you, Lord. Far be it from you, Lord. This should never happen to you. And what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus reacts in one of the strongest ways you ever see in the Gospels. Uh, to Peter. He says, get behind, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. You see, here's the point. Peter had to come to terms with something. It was that Jesus was a suffering Messiah. He wasn't a soldier Messiah. He hadn't come to be a, a, a soldier Messiah. He was a suffering Messiah. And that meant that, that, meant, that meant that Peter had to reconsider the Jewish scriptures again. So here was Peter's issue. Just how did Jesus, the suffering Messiah fit in with the story of God's dealings with the, with, the, with the nation of Israel over the centuries. Now I think, in time, Peter came to resolve this issue. How do we know that? Because of the verses that we have in front of us in, in 1 Peter. Um, because in these words we find that Peter had come to realise that the Jewish scriptures didn't point forward to a soldier messiah they pointed to a suffering messiah so all the descriptions and predictions of the first coming of the messiah in the Jewish scriptures they pointed to a bleeding messiah and Peter 
had realised that. And we know that because he wrote what he wrote here in our passage in Peter. Now, one of the reasons it's complicated is because in the Old Testament there were predictions of the Messiah coming twice. The first time he comes as a, as a, a suffering Messiah, but the second time he does come as a warrior Messiah to destroy all of his enemies. But not the first time. And sometimes that's why the Old Testament can be difficult to predict when it comes to a discussion of which coming of the Messiah we're dealing with. But let's take a look at what Peter says. Look in verse 10. I'm in 1 Peter now. And chapter 1, verse 10. And Peter writes these words. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 10. He says, concerning this salvation, that's the one he's been writing about, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. This is a slightly obscure piece of scripture. So what does Peter mean? Well, Peter seems to be explaining to his readers that the gift of salvation and that the living hope that comes with it which was made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It wasn't some quick fix that was thought up in a moment. All of God's plan of salvation has been, was planned by God from a long time ago, from before the foundation of the world, we would say. Um, and the prophets in the Old Testament, uh, the ones who, who possess what he, he, uh, he calls the spirit of Christ within them, they peered ahead and they predicted the day of salvation, which had now come for Peter and his readers, and for us. You see, salvation was the culmination of centuries of redemptive history. Jesus' redemptive uh, suffering for the world was part of a plan that went on for centuries. It was God's plan all the way that Jesus would die on a cross. He would die and he would rise again. And Peter's saying this, that for the Old Testament prophets, their understanding was faint of a suffering Messiah, but it was there. They knew that the Messiah would suffer, that he wouldn't be a a soldier redeemer. So I see these verses that we find here in 1 Peter as a kind of acknowledgement that Peter had changed his mind about the kind of Messiah um, that was expected. See, the prophets, he says, they looked ahead and they saw suffering and then glory. So you and I, we need to see that in the Old Testament, all the lines and all the types and all the stories, they find their explanation in the life of Jesus, but especially in the suffering of Christ at Calvary and in his resurrection, where Jesus suffered and he paid a penalty for others, for their sin. So let me just pause there and tell you um, a way that I think about the Old Testament. I kind of compare the Old Testament to a boxing match. And let me explain why. Maybe you've never seen a boxing match, but you know, if you go to a big championship boxing match, or, uh, uh, say at a world level, you've got these champion fighters who are fighting for huge amounts of money, um, and it's a big deal on the screen, uh, in, uh, in terms of television rights across the world and so on. Uh, you pay lots of money to go. Let's imagine you pay lots of money to go. And it might be that one of the boxers could be knocked out within seconds and then you've come for this whole evening and 
uh, and, and you've spent all that money and it's kind of over in a few minutes. So to avoid that kind of scenario, the organisers of these big fights, they, they usually put on three or four smaller fights before the big fight. Um, so they have their preliminary boxing matches, three or four fights of different uh, lesser known people. Um, and then when they're done, somebody comes out with a banner which says, this is the main event. The, the main event begins now. And then the, the big boxers come on to have their fight. Um, but the point is that all that's gone before these smaller fights that happen, um, and the ringmaster's exaggerated introductions that you always get, the point of them is that they are designed to create a sense of occasion for the big fight. The build-up is everything, isn't it? Now, I know that the events of the Old Testament have all kinds of significance in all sorts of ways, and my uh, task this morning is not to tell you what they all are, but one of the, the purposes of the, Old Testament is to, of the Old Testament is to create a sense of occasion for the main event. So just let me give you one example of this. So you have 1,500 years, roughly, between Abraham and Jesus. And in all that time, you have the sacrificial system of animals dying. Millions and millions of them. And what do they do? They, they point ahead to one sacrifice that would have infinite significance at Calvary. All those animal sacrifices, what do they speak of? They speak of substitution. In other words, that the, the animal would die as a substitute for the person who put their hands on the animal. That the point was that the animal would die in their place, bearing their sin. All those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, they spoke of substitution. If you understand that, then you understand a huge amount about the book of Leviticus, for example. Um, so they spoke of an animal dying in the place of the believer. They spoke of transferred sin. They spoke of transferred guilt onto the animal. Those animals dying, they spoke of forgiveness, <coughs> excuse me, and cleansing. But here's the point. All of those lambs and goats and bulls, they weren't the real thing. They were just pictures. They were just hints. They were shadows of the real thing. You see, somebody was to come who would die, and his death, his blood, would have power with God one day. You see, the Messiah would be a suffering Messiah, and it's written right through the Old Testament, in the sacrificial system. We could think about Abraham and Isaac, Abraham offering Isaac as an example as well, couldn't we? That picture that one day the father would offer the son. And so on, there's so many examples uh, of the significance of what happened in the Old Testament. Cain's sacrifice was not accepted because it wasn't a blood sacrifice. Only a blood sacrifice is acceptable to God because it pointed to, the, to a blood sacrifice at Calvary, for example. So, the sacrificial system, they were, it, was a, it was pointers and shadows. But here, Peter is speaking of uh, the prophets in the Old Testament. Um, he says that they, they peered ahead. They saw the future. They realized that Jesus was going to be a suffering Messiah. That the idea that he had all those years ago, when he met Jesus, that he was going to be a soldier Messiah, was wrong. The Old Testament was not predicting a soldier Messiah. Let me just read to you some words uh, from Isaiah chapter 53. Just to give you the most obvious example that the, the prophets looked ahead to see a suffering Messiah. 
I don't have this on the screen. But he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as of one from whom men hid their faces. This is Jesus. This is the suffering servant of the latter part of Isaiah. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we we um, esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So, there's an example in Isaiah 53 of how uh, the prophets realised that Jesus would be a suffering Messiah. Because the theme of Isaiah 53 is a servant who suffers and he suffers for others. He experiences pain and shame. And if you look at the whole context of that passage from Isaiah, you see uh, uh, following his suffering, you see vindication, you see triumph, and you see victory. Glory follows, which is what Peter says in his letter. Suffering to glory is the, is the path of the Messiah. So Isaiah predicts a Christ who would suffer first and triumph later. So all those years ago at Caesarea Philippi, Peter's expectations about Jesus had been wrong when he rebuked Jesus for predicting his own sufferings. See, Peter hadn't been reading his Bible carefully enough. The Messiah was not coming as a soldier Messiah. Not the first time anyway. The next time, he certainly will. (coughs) So, here's the point that the Old Testament and the New Testament are both on the same page. Their theme is Jesus, his death and his resurrection and his final triumph. You see, the point of this text uh, in Peter is that Peter had come to see unity in God's plan. He came to see that the Old Testament prophets and the whole of the Old Testament and the New Testament apostles all united together around Jesus and his sufferings followed by glory. I'll just read you some words of Charles Spurgeon, the English Baptist preacher in the 19th century. Spurgeon said this. He said, The prophets foretold what the apostles reported. The seers, that's the prophets, looked forward and the evangelists, that's the gospel writers, looked backwards, but their eyes met in one place. They see eye to eye and both of them behold the cross. And then Peter writes in verse 12, It was revealed to them, that's the Old Testament prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels long to look into. Now this is a bit hard to understand I think, but Peter, but according to Peter, the reason that the Old Testament prophets understood uh, matters of the Messiah's suffering and then his vindication and his triumph and his glory, the reason that they understood those things was not for themselves but for them, Peter's readers and for us living this side of the cross. And what these prophets tell us, Peter is saying, it helps us in our suffering now. You see, the heart of what the prophets predict according to Peter is that Christ's Uh, path would provide us with a pattern suffering first and then glory to follow 
And if you said to me, why are these scriptures here? Why does Peter write in this particular way? I would say that he's still in the business and he is all the way through uh, his first letter. He's preparing uh, believers to suffer. You see, Peter's saying something like this, that if it happened to the Messiah that way, suffering first and then glory, the same will happen for you. Suffering now at the hands of the Roman authorities, but vindication and glory to follow. And of course that's the same for all believers today, believers who are living in North Korea. I read this two weeks ago, maybe a week ago, about a family in North Korea and they were discovered to have a Bible and their two-year-old toddler son was sentenced, their son was sentenced to, to life imprisonment because his parents had a Bible. A two-year-old toddler in North Korea. Uh, I have no idea what happened to the parents. Uh, persecution is happening in Burma, it's happening in China, it's happening in Pakistan, it's happening all the way across the world. But this pattern that Peter discusses here, trials now, but praise and glory and honour when Christ is revealed for those who suffer. And this is the point that I think we, should, we need to see here is that uh, we're to keep our eyes on Jesus. See, he is to be our inspiration. He suffered and then he entered, he entered into glory. It's a path that is well trodden by our leader and we are to follow in his footsteps. So Peter's saying something like this, don't fret. This is a well-tested road to travel on and you must remember that on hard days when persecution comes. So that's my first heading. Suffering first and then glory to follow. But here's our second heading which is to get your mind, <coughs> get your mind ready. <coughs> Excuse me. If you look in verse 13 of uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 he writes, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I've never faced a situation where my home or my business or my spouse, my wife or my life could be taken off me at any time. And so it's hard to know exactly how I'd feel. But I think at the very least that my mind would be in turmoil. The danger is that I'd be paralysed with fear. And so Peter tells his readers to prepare their minds for action. Now this might be an instruction to do things, to not be passive in the face of persecution. It could be an instruction to boldly get on with the building of the kingdom, even when things are hard and difficult and you're suffering. But I think more likely it's an instruction to be uh, to be self-controlled, to get our thinking under control when we face difficulties and persecution. Uh, less like Peter himself, when the test comes, we buckle under pressure, as Peter once did. Um, some of you may know of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a very famous Christian man, who lived in uh, Nazi Germany during the Second World War. He was in America before the, the war. He could have stayed there, but he chose to go back and be with his people in the confessing church. And he took this very strong stand against Hitler. He was eventually executed in 1945, just before the end of the war, just out of spite, really, by the Nazis. But he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in The Cost of Discipleship, he writes these words, When Christ calls a man 
he bids him to come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And this is really what Peter, I think, means when he talks about this idea of preparing our minds for action. You see, Bonhoeffer instructed his own heart. And that's what he taught his followers in Nazi Germany. He was preparing them for the ultimate sacrifice. He wanted them to settle it in their minds what the price was likely to be of opposing the evil of Adolf Hitler. And he paid that price. When Christ calls a man to follow it, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Richard Wurmbrand uh, was a Lutheran pastor from Romania in the days of of the uh, Iron Curtain and the Communist bloc in the post-World War II years. Uh, Wurmbrand was terribly tortured by the communist authorities. <coughs> His body was covered in scars from the torture that he experienced. Eventually he uh, was expelled and um, Christians in the West paid for his release and the communists were so, uh, so uh, desperate for foreign currency that they were willing to sell him and he, he was uh, redeemed. He was brought out of the, uh, out of the communist bloc out of Romania, I think in um, 1960s. Anyway, he wrote a book uh, called Torture for Christ. And in Torture for Christ, he writes these words. He said, <clears throat> I remember my last confirmation class. If you're not an Anglican, you may not know about confirmation classes. But confirmation classes are kind of a, a first profession of faith. I took my last confirmation class before I left Romania. <clears throat> and he says, I took a group of 10 to 15 boys and girls on a Sunday morning, not to church, but to the zoo. Before the cage of lions, I said to them, your forefathers in the faith were thrown before such beasts for their faith. Know that you also will have to suffer. You will not be thrown before lions, but you, but you, will, have, but you will have to do with men who will do far worse than lions will do to you. Decide here and now if you wish, wish to pledge allegiance to Christ. And he writes, they had tears in their eyes as they said, as they said yes, they would follow Jesus. See, what's Wernbrand doing? He was preparing the minds of these children for action. Young Christian believer children for action. He was preparing them. Uh, he was, so he was getting them ready for a foundation of self-control in their minds. And Peter was writing to, to people in, in a, a similar situation to these children that Wernbrand was talking about. So how does Peter counsel them? Well, he's trying to keep them from panicking in the face of persecution. And he writes this, he tells these readers um, to set their hope fully on the grace that is to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So what is that grace? Well, I think that grace to be revealed at the end time is is many things, it might just be, not just be, it might be that we hear the words of Christ one day, uh, well done, good and faithful servant. But it will also be this grace to be revealed. History is going to end in a dramatic climax, as you will know if you read your Bible. Uh, all of God's enemies are going to be destroyed and God will gather his people to himself and he will honour them. Uh, and he will give them new resurrection bodies and he, he is preparing a great city for them to dwell in. Uh, 
bodies that will never die, a city that doesn't need any light because it is lit by the glory of God, uh, a, a world of eternity where there will be no tears, there will be no uh, pain, there will be no shame, there will be no suffering, a world uh, of perfection, a restored Eden, but better. God is preparing something that will blow our minds that we cannot even conceive the greatness of what he's preparing for his people. And this is our inheritance. This is the grace that will be revealed one day. And Peter wants believers to focus on that grace as the storm clouds gather for these people he's writing to. When I, this is a, um, an example of my own life. Uh, but when I was... Um, 11 years old, my, my parents were involved in planting a church in, in the north of England in a, in a very um, difficult situation in a big city, in an inner city. Um, and because of where we lived, we, my parents had no choice but to send me to the local school. And the school was a, it was a bad place, to say the least. It was an all-boys school, you know. Uh, I learned very quickly that when there were no females around males, males turned into savages very quickly. Uh, and this school, it was, like a, it was like a jungle. It was just a, a world of bullying and acts of violence and cruelty. Um, this went on day after day after day. And I, I hated being in the school. I, never, I didn't sleep at night. I used to wake up in the morning in fear of going to school. I was from a, a gentle Christian family. And, uh, and many of the other boys in the school were from broken homes. Their fathers were in jail or they were drug dealers. They were brought up as, with violence as a way of life. But there was one thing that kept me going through that year, I was only there for a year fortunately but the, the thing that kept me going through that year in that school was the thought of the school vacation I'd long for the end of the semester when I didn't have to turn up at school and um, that's focusing on that final day of the semester kept me alive it, kept me, it helped me survive through those difficult, difficult times and Peter is saying in, on, on a much bigger scale than a difficult school, Peter is saying a similar thing here, that the Christian's future inheritance is to sustain us through suffering. That inheritance, we are to fasten our attention on that inheritance. It's to grip our minds. Even Jesus he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He focused on the joy that was beyond the cross. What did Paul say? He said to live is Christ and to die is gain. Therefore, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then Peter writes uh, these words in verse 14. He says, As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So the way, the way that Peter finishes this passage, because he's not finished his train of thought, we'll come back to more next week. But what Peter does here is, here is he connects hope and holiness. Hope and holiness. You see, his point is this, that it makes no sense looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, if we're nurturing and cherishing sin in our lives. It's kind of inconsistent. 
he's simply saying that our lives should reflect the trajectory that they're set on. What is the trajectory? Our trajectory is that we are set um, for encountering Christ and for a, a holy heaven, and so our lives should be um, lived. We should be living a life of holiness now. So holiness now in preparation for a holy heaven. But also he's saying something like this, that on a practical level, when we cherish sin in our lives and we cultivate it in our lives, then that, sent, that joy that will be ours at the second coming of Christ, um, then that joy will kind of be diminished because what sin always does is it always diminishes and robs us of our joy now. You don't sense, he's saying something like this, you won't sense the joy of Christ's second coming or the inheritance that is in store for you if you're nurturing sin on, in some part of your life. That joy which is supposed to be the motivation will, be, will, be, will rob you of the joy that you should have. So he says, so the point really here is that God himself is to be our pattern for living. So I'm really trying to get across two themes today, really. First, the first one is that uh, Peter had had to transition in his thinking from believing that, this, the, uh, that the, the Messiah he was expecting would be a soldier Messiah who would deliver them from the Romans. Actually, he realised that Jesus was a suffering Messiah who had come to save him from his sin. And actually... His mis- he had misunderstood the Old Testament along with many of the Jewish people all the way through the Old Testament uh, a suffering Messiah was predicted but Peter uses that he takes it up and he says that the point about all this is that there's a pattern in the life of Jesus suffering now and glory to follow and Peter says you're about to suffer remember Christ remember that pattern that pattern will be the same for you you suffer now but there is glory to come. There is an inheritance for you. And the light, in the light of that, Peter says, get your minds ready for action. Get your minds ready. Prepare them for what's to come for the difficult days ahead. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.